Good morning. Man, let's start out by praying this morning. I, I hear the kids already, and I know they've been shuffled around this morning, painted all nice. I know my kids were already grumpy coming out of the bed. They're, I mean, I heard my wife at least once say, I'm telling you, if you're late, it's going to be a bad day for you. <laughs> we're getting up. So I know how kids are. Having three myself, I know it's hard to get everybody up, get everybody here. Trying to be on time, trying to get them all prettied up so you can take pictures. I got girls, I know. I know, and it takes a long time. I'm just, you just, if you, I just prepared to be late my whole life to everything I'm going to. That's why I get here an hour early. I don't even want to be in the house when all that's happening. I let my wife deal with all that stuff, and I just get here and pray for her. I just pray for her. Lord Jesus, give her patience. And God said, that's what I gave her three kids for. <clears throat> well, I can tell you this, after this past uh, week, my heart has been so heavy over the past few days, my wife keeps apologizing to me, saying, I'm sorry, if I, may, if I said anything, I'm like, no, I don't think I recovered from our last Wednesday's meeting, uh, the content we discussed that night was pretty, pretty rough, and my heart uh, was reminded of the size and the weight at times of what we're trying to do here at Mosaic, uh, it's kind of, at times, I'm going to be honest, it's made me feel small. It's made me feel insignificant and, and often alone. And so, uh, but yet we can't stop. I, I, I believe with everything in me, despite what my eyes see, that God can turn this decaying landscape around. Uh, if you weren't here for Wednesday, we talked about sexual sin. We talked about a lot of things that we'd seen and witnessed here in the Marble Falls area. Uh, things that had bothered us. We'd seen a lot of different stuff going in the Marble Falls area in the newspaper here recently and a lot of things that we've just seen and pretty heavy stuff. And, 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 and the thing about that is and the reason I feel this way or a somberness to, to this week has been just the fact that my heart hurts for Marble Falls, that uh, for, the, for, the, for the teenagers, the students, the kids, the adults that struggle here, my heart hurts for them. And uh, uh, despite all, all, it seems like I never win or we never win as a church, uh, Man, I know that God can just turn this thing around. So there's like always hope, but it, it, there's kind of a sadness to it too. And so um, for me, the, the, the sad statistical truth of the falling away church is this, though. This is a great truth, though. Regardless of all the statistics of the number that the church is decreasing, because that's true, uh, or that it feels like we're never reaching or evangelizing into the future, really growing when it looks like we're growing. I mean, to me, I've always said that it looks like that the world's on fire and the church is just so happy. Act like they're oblivious to it. But hear me tell you something. One drop of the Holy Spirit will change everything. I'm going to say that again. One, one drop of the Holy Spirit and our whole climate changes. Everything changes. That's where the hope is. That's where our hope is at. I believe with everything in me that if, we, if, if when God begins to just lay things on, when God begins to uh, uh, move in this area, when God begins to start doing some, some things in here and we begin to pray for these things and start to see these miracles take place, that the whole climate is going to change. And this is the message of my heart, man. I mean, literally, this is the literal beating uh, uh, of my heart, the hope, the thing that I've wept over, the thing that I've prayed over, and it's the real reason that I continue to press on, even though I feel inadequate, quite honestly. Have you ever felt like that? You ever felt like no matter what, like it's a losing scenario? Like you, if you don't do anything, you're definitely going to lose. And even if you try to do something, you're probably not going to win either. Like all bets are off. Like it's probably not going to happen. You, 
it's like 90% not going to happen. Then all of a sudden you're like, well, but I got to try, right? I got to do something. And, and I'll start with this this morning as we begin. Uh, it's been over 22 years since I met my wife, Joy. We've dated, we dated roughly for about a year and a half before her parents decided they, they were going to move away to Washington State. This would be the wisdom for them. They, they were moving up there. Their, her dad had a job, and their whole family was going to be moving up there. And, and I'll never forget the day that she left. And we talked over the phone, and I did my best to be strong. Uh, and as we talked, we assured ourselves that our love was bigger than 2,200 miles that had divided us now. Uh, we, we, we would remain faithful to each other until we meet again kind of thing. And uh, it was very, very romantic in one degree, but it was also very sad. And I'll never forget getting off that phone and just weeping. I mean, like I ugly cried, you know, snot coming out. It's like ugly. Like you don't want to admit that a man cried like that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like it was bad. And I had no experience with long distance relationships at all. Only from what I'd seen really from others, and uh, let's just be honest, truthfully, I never saw one that worked. Something in my heart was broken about this, because that's, that was my, like, my outlook, was that this thing is, yeah, it sounds good on the phone, but it's probably more likely not going to work. Something in my heart was just broken. And I didn't have the faith, because I didn't know Jesus back then, that we would actually stay together if we yet stayed apart. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the more I wept, however, the more I fixed my mind on her, and something in me switched. And I, I found something that even though I had sunk into this drunken depression from the Marine Corps, I, I found something that I hadn't seen since then. I found courage. I found perseverance. I found passion. I found inspiration. And the next day, I sold almost everything I had, and I bought a one-way ticket to Washington State. The rest, they say, is history. That's true. Listen, Romeo had his Juliet. King Arthur fought for Guinevere. Robin rescued Maid Marian. And I had my joy. I had my joy. John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart, writes, There's nothing so inspiring to a man as a beautiful woman. She'll make you want to charge the castle, slay the giant, leap across the parapets. Oh, maybe, and, or maybe hit a home run. One day during a little league game, my son Samuel was so inspired, he likes baseball. But most boys starting out aren't sure they really have it in them to be a great player. Sam's our firstborn, and like so many firstborns, he's cautious. He always lets a few pitches go by before he takes a swing, and when he does, it's never a full swing. Every one of his hits up to this point were always in the infield. Anyway, just as Sam steps up to bat this one afternoon, his friend from down the street, a cute little blonde girl, shows up along the first baseline. Standing up on tiptoe, she yells out his name and waves to Sam. Pretending he doesn't notice her, he broadens his stamps. He grips the bat a little tighter. He looks at the pitcher with something fierce in his eye. First one over the plate, he knocks it to center field. A man wants to be the hero to something beautiful. I cannot find a more true statement than the very first thing he said, there is nothing more inspiring to a man as a beautiful woman. Now, this might be a strange way to talk about Easter, but truthfully, I didn't intend to uh, uh, originally begin to think about this as an Easter message. I'm just going to be honest there. This has been something that I've been brooding over for quite some time, and I'm going to show you how I ended up there, but I wanted to start here so you at least have an understanding of maybe where I'm headed. And just trust me along the way, I am headed there. 
But this all began when I first began to think about the scriptures. And actually really a comment that God made to Elijah. And it bothered me. And it's bothered me probably for the last year, year and a half or so. And it starts in 1 Kings chapter 19. And if you have your Bible, this is where we begin. 1 Kings chapter 19, 11 through 18. I'm just going to give you a few seconds. Get your digital Bibles out. Your actual paper, old school, ancient Bible out. By the way, I still like paper Bibles. That's not a shot against a paper Bible. I have a whole bunch. First Kings 19, 11 through 18. I know it's a strange place to start for Easter, but I promise you, it's going to be worth it. I've wept and I've prayed over this. And this isn't a word that I just wanted to bring to you. This is a word that God gave me for me. And I'm sharing with you something intimate for me. It reads, go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be king of Aram and anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel Mahala to replace you as my prophet. And anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Now, I can tell you that reading the scriptures without the fullness of understanding in them is frustrating. Because for a few years now, this entire text has done nothing but frustrate me. Elijah is without question a unique individual, and his ministry has been extraordinary. I mean, you can read it yourself. He has said and done some amazing things. Things, the things that we'll, we still kind of marvel over today. On this, uh, on this day in the scripture, we see the weariness of Elijah as he approaches God. He, he's lived some heights and he's lived some lows in his life. His prayer life has had an extreme effect upon the culture. If Elijah prays for the rain to stop, guess what it does? It stops. If Elijah prays for the rain to begin, then it begins And on Mount Carmel, he asked God to pour himself out in fire on the altar, disproving the false prophets of his day and proving that God is actually real. And God does it. But here in the cave, where there's no one to defeat, where there's no one to teach, Elijah has lost his focus. Now, in times past, he's answered the call, man, and he's done some, I mean, amazing things. But the loneliness of his work now has the best of him. He sees the enormity of of the depravity upon his people, the wickedness, the sinfulness of his nation. And and it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. It's too big. You know what I'm saying? It's too big. God, how can I? I mean, I'm just one guy. It's too big. And the loneliness just swallows him up. 
He wants to help them, but they don't want his help. The greatness of his problem is just bigger than him. And he knows God, but in this moment, it's just a lot. You ever had one of those moments where you know you can handle it, but right now it's just a lot. It's more than you can bear. It's too much. And in that moment, there's a loneliness that it doesn't matter that you have 20 people around you that are your family and friends. You still feel lonely. Right? I always, I always laughed at this moment to some degree because, by the way, Elijah has a servant. For a guy who's always alone, I always feel bad for that guy, right? He's standing there in the corner like, dude, who am I? Hey, bro, I'm all alone, God. Hey, I'm right here, man. Talk to me. Right? I mean, but there's this loneliness that, that just envelops us sometimes, when, especially when we want to make a difference. We want to change something, and it just feels too big. God, I can't do it. And so we just give up. And he asked God, God, I'm all alone. And what's God's reply? Well, I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who've never bowed a knee to Baal. And here's where my struggle is, guys, where my frustration, it would always come with this group of scriptures. Because over the past few years, it doesn't matter how many times I would read this, my thoughts are always the same. How is this supposed to make Elijah feel better, God? I can't tell you how many times I've heard preachers use this passage as an encouragement for those out there who feel alone. They would always look out at you and they go, well, you're not alone. Look like back at Elijah. There were 7,000 others that have yet to bow a knee. And listen, my response was always the same. Then where are they? Because when I shut the reins up, where were they? When I opened the reins back up, where were they? When I was on Mount Carmel, I didn't see one of them volunteering for that job. When I stood before King Ahab, and by the way, Queen Jezebel, who says, I am going to cut your head off. How come she didn't include the other 7,000? Where are they, right? I don't know about you, but this don't, that don't comfort me. <laughs> well, there's 7,000 others. Where are they then? And this only reminds me that while many might worship the Lord, few will actually live in such a way that make a difference. And this is why Elijah is struggling with loneliness to begin with. And man, I know this feeling too well. It's gut-wrenching. It's heavy. There are days when you wake up and you just want to be like everyone else. Like, I can put down this pastoring gig in a heartbeat, go to my 8-to-5 job, show up on Sunday, ditch church after that, and do whatever I want. You know, I'll just decide not to come in on Sunday, man, and have like a month off. And can't nobody judge me because I don't care. But I can't. And it's not because I want to be holy or righteous or looked at that way, but it's because I can't stop seeing the darkness that lays here. For whatever reason, I feel like if I can see it, by the way, I believe the Bible's pretty teaching on this, that if I can see it, I'm responsible for it. And I feel like some of the things that we experience, the sexual sin that we see in Marble Falls when it comes to predators and uh, a, a, a prostitution ring that they have to bring down here in Marble Falls, or uh, when I hear about in Bertram, like 30 people get, being in a drug bus for methamphetamines, or when I hear about different things that are happening and kids are in, in harm's way, or uh, when I see constantly kids... Uh, uh, all I mean, for my last five years, there's nothing but student ministry, and I've dealt with so many kids on drugs, on drinking, uh, having pre premarital sex, struggling with it, uh, all kinds of different stuff. And I'm responsible for that. Why? Because I see it. I can't turn away and look when I know it's there. I feel responsible. 
So I know what it's like. There are days you wake up and you want to be like, you wish you didn't see these things so you wouldn't have to be so burdened by it, so you wouldn't have to be passionate about doing something. And feel the task feels too big. How do I bring a people back to God? How do I do that, God? I feel like Elijah right here in this moment. They don't want to. They don't. They don't want, it's too hard, it's too difficult. We don't know the way, God, we're lost. We, we're looking in the wilderness for a place to go. We're just waiting for the fire to tell us what to do, God. That's a hard. We grow weary, we grow tiresome, man. I mean, like, if listen, let's just be honest with you. We're so entertained every second, every minute, that if we had to wait for a full day, we just give up. So this scripture has never brought me comfort, and it's never eased my loneliness until a few weeks ago. And as I begin to read over the scripture again and meditate on it, and I'm going to tell you the Holy Spirit did something to me and began to teach me, uh, uh, really, really just revealed to me something that I had not take, taken notice of before. Wh- what if God telling Elijah that there are 7,000 that have yet to bow knee isn't about loneliness? I think we hear it preached so much that we think that, or at least for me, I have. What if this statement, God is trying, in this statement, God is trying to refocus Elijah on the bigger picture. What if it's not about loneliness? What if it's about inspiration? See, the other half to what John Eldridge had to say fits perfectly in here. I read you the first paragraph, but the second paragraph said this. Young men going off to war carry a photo of their sweetheart in their wallet. Men who fly combat missions will paint a beauty on the side of their aircraft. The crews of World War II B-17 bombers gave those flying fortresses names like me and my gal. Or some of you have heard of the Memphis Belle. I mean, what would Robin Hood or King Arthur be without the woman they love? Lonely men fighting lonely battles. Indiana Jones and James Bond just wouldn't be the same without a beauty at their side. And inevitably, they must fight for her. You see, it's not just that a man needs a battle to fight. He needs someone to fight for. Remember Nehemiah's words to the few brave souls defending the wallless Jerusalem? Don't be afraid. Fight for your brothers, for your sons, and for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. The battle itself is never enough. A man yearns for romance. It's not enough to be a hero. It's that he is a hero to someone in particular, to the woman he loves. Adam was given the wind and the sea and the horse and the hawk. But as God himself said, things were just not right until Eve. What if God here is trying to inspire Elijah that this is bigger than him? I mean, really, it's what he's doing here while suffering Mental anguish is for the greater good of everything he holds dear. He's struggling here in loneliness. Listen, Elijah, let me refocus you. Let me show you what we're fighting for, Elijah. Don't forget what this is about. God is simply giving Elijah something to live for, something to work for, and ultimately something to die for. And what does he point to? He points to his people, or as God calls them, his bride. It's all for them. A man is never more passionate than when he's being completely selfless. It will send him to battle. It will send him to war. It will send him to the cross. Luke 22, verse 39 through 46 reads, 
Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And there he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened me, prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. About the only thing close to the weakness you'll ever see in Christ is in this moment. Here in the solitude of prayer, he faces a battle between flesh and the spirit. His flesh knows what's lying ahead of him and creates the internal struggle. Jesus is so spiritually strong that the only glimpse we get of it uh, is in this small moment of asking, can the cup be passed? I know what's coming. And Lord, if there's any way that I can avoid this pain, nevertheless... But in that tiny moment, we see the humanity of Jesus. We see it just a little bit. But he knows he can't pass it. He knows it. The Bible says an angel strengthened him, but I can't help but think that in that moment, the reason he's so fixed on the cross is because of you and because of me. Oh, he's fighting. And for what? Glory. He already has that. He's fighting for the bride. He is fixed. He is so fixed on the cross because of you and me. He will have us. And in that moment, I picture Jesus like I picture my pitiful self crying over the thought of not seeing joy again. Down on the ground. Agony. If I don't do this, if this doesn't, I have to. I have to save her. For her, I have come. Oh, somebody get this. It's for her that I do this. It's for her that I come. Listen, her is all of you. It was too much to bear. Jesus can't lose his bride. It's for her that he's here. It's for her that he's come to this place. It's for her that he'll go to the cross. It's for her that he keeps his mouth shut and he does what needs to be done. I mean, just the thought of this has left him sweating blood. The loneliness of that moment must have been so difficult, and yet he's surrounded by his friends, who, by the way, didn't appear to apparently want to help him too much because they were sleeping. They couldn't even pray. <laughs> Jesus pushes, he presses through, he's inspired by God for the sake of the bride, and he determines himself to the cross, and he dies, saying, it is finished. And it is. And he's done it. But this love story is far from over. Y'all know where we're going. Luke 24. First nine verses. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. And the women were terrified. They bowed their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. 
Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. Man, neither life nor the troubles of this world, such as loneliness and all the physical abuse and all the mental abuse that he had to take, not even death could stop Jesus from saving us. He fixed his eyes on us, but this isn't new. This isn't new. His eyes have always been fixed on us throughout history. Ezekiel 16, my, my, one of my favorite all-time chapters. In regards to the bride, it's his origin story of how he met her and how he loves her and all the things he did for her. In Ezekiel 16, it says, I gave you expensive clothing of fine linen and silk, beautifully embroidered and sandals made of fine goatskin leather. I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, beautiful necklace, a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears, and a lovely crown for your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were made of fine linen and costly fabric and were beautifully embroidered. You ate the finest foods, the choice flour, honey, and olive oil, and became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen, and so you were. Your fame soon spread throughout the world because of your beauty. But listen, I dressed you. I dressed you in my splendor. and I perfected you in your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. Man, I, I know church is a lot of things, but if there's ever one thing that I've always had against the church, it's this, that though she parade around as if she's covered herself in her own hard work, the truth will always be that God has forever perfected her in his splendor. She's beautiful not because she's a gifted cosmetologist, but because the love story between her and God is the thread that holds all of this together. Oh, see, God's a smitten in love. What kind of fool loves people who hate him, who, don't, who never do hardly what he says, who barely live a life of obedience? I mean, think about what, what Jesus came to save. None of you. I mean, I've talked about this in times past, about how much we should appreciate God. And the proof is in our meme culture. Remember, remember talking to some of you about that? About how in the memes we're always like, I wouldn't have no friend that's a backstabber, you know, gossiper, all this stuff. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Jesus does. <laughs> Half the people you wouldn't be friends with, Jesus loves. I mean, we always say that. you got to get all these people out of your life. Man, I'm glad Jesus don't. That's like the most unchristian thing, really, too. That's the, that's the weirdest thing about it. Like, the, the thing is, Jesus loves people like that. And so, like, the, the irony to me is, like, so were all those friends that you're ditching, please send them to me. I'm going to tell you that right now because I know that them plus Jesus is awesome. Now, it takes a while. They all start out rough. I get it. But send them to us, man. Because the worse, the better. The more sin abounds, the more grace abounds. God's a big God. This is what he'll do for her. You see where my frustration lays? Here I, I read the scripture. I struggle in the loneliness. I struggle in these things like that. And so I begin to read these scriptures, and I find no comfort. God, God, sometimes I feel like I'm the only one that sees what I see. I feel like, you know, while there's some that might see it, God, I feel like they just don't, maybe they're just not as passionate as I am. Maybe the, blah, blah, blah. It's a big pity party. Same thing Elijah's having in the cave, man. I'm all by myself. I'm all alone. Everything's horrible. Really, Elijah? Because I know like a lot of Christians that would love to have your prayer life. 
Like, would love to be able to just call rain down because we wouldn't have been in no drought. I can tell you that. Right? I mean, like, we would love to have the, the spiritual things that happened in his life. But here in this struggle, in this giant pity party, I'm all alone. Well, there's 7,000 yet to bow his knee. That's not for me, Elijah, to tell you that, uh, 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 try to tell you, hey, look, there's others out there. Because the truth of the matter is, no, they weren't up there on Carmel. The truth of the matter is, no. They're locked away under, under key somewhere, maybe in their prayer closet, which I'm glad they're praying, but let's be honest, they don't have a voice. They're too scared to say something. They're, maybe that's just why I called you. And, and your job here, Elijah, is not to worry about them. Your job, Elijah, is to fight for them. Your job is to die for them, Elijah. Your job is to live for them, Elijah. Your job is to be inspired by them, Elijah. I mean, this whole story, the whole Bible begins in inspiration. And God's people, his bride, he's like so inspired. I mean, how, how can you not start to see the correlation between Elijah's struggle there and Jesus' struggle? What holds Jesus? Jesus, if this cup can pass, I don't want it pass, but your will be done. That's what he's saying. Your will, God. That's what I want. Why? Because I will have her. Because she's worth dying for. And ultimately, she's worth living for. Because ain't nothing going to stop me from having her, not even death. And I find that my refocus now comes back. And those times where I feel lonely, I remind myself why I do what I do. Why I care so much. Why I'm always asking people if they know Jesus. Or why I'm always trying to, to uh, uh, be, you know, make friends and tell people about Jesus. Why I do what I do. Why? I'm inspired. I'm inspired by, by Jesus. I'm inspired by Elijah. I'm inspired by Moses. I'm inspired by these men who had something greater to live for. Something greater to hope for. And what is that? It's the bride, man. You know, I want to be the best husband I can be. Why? Because I'm inspired by my wife. I'm inspired by my kids to be the best husband I can be. By, by be the best father I can be. I'm inspired. Just like Jesus is inspired by the bride. To die. To raise from the grave. Man. And he's inspired by us. And let's be honest, man. We don't bring a whole lot to that table. Isn't that the greatness of Easter? Like, I'm not trying to be somber and beat you down today. I am not, because I am happy. Like, to me, like I, to me, for, for me, this message to me was like, thank you. Because for all the struggle that I might feel at times, thank you. Thank you for realigning me with what I'm supposed to be doing, with why I do what I do. To not be discouraged, to not be dismayed. Hey, there's 7,000 yet to bow knee. Then maybe my job, and, and I love what, like, you know what God tells him at that moment? You see what God is trying to say? Then get ready to pass what you know down. Because this 7,000, they're the 7,000 that's coming after you. Because of what you did now, we can set the precedence and create a new generation. You know, I said something in here last Wednesday, and I thought it was like almost prophetic. I might not be the generation that brings down fire, but I might be able to raise up the generation that does. I might be able to lay a foundation of coals so that when, they throw, when we throw dry wood on there again, they'll burn bright. And maybe that's, that, maybe that's what I'm called to do. Maybe that's what I'm called. I, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I'm inspired by you. Why? Because Jesus died for you. Because Jesus lives for you. And if one person comes to the Lord, then one person, that's one more to the bride. That's one more person Jesus died and lived for. That's one more. And man, this is Easter. Easter's not about if you come to church or not. <laughs> Easter's not about all the fancy marketing. It's not about all the junk. I still struggle with it. I don't know if your Facebook feed looks like mine. I've never seen so much advertising. I'm like, 
I'm surprised, like, why don't we do it every year? I mean, like, why don't we do it, like, every weekend? I mean, it just seems like, I know, like, it's, like, the one time a year we know people will come, and so there's, like, all this advertising, but my gosh, man, it's, like, commercialized. And I, I don't, I'm not inspired to do that. I'm inspired to live and die for each other. And what I mean by I don't mean, like, I'm going to die for you, like, take a bullet for you. Hopefully you're not getting shot at. All right? That's a whole different game, brother. I got to live for my family, too. No, but, man, I mean, like, I want to be there when things are good. I want to be there when things are bad for each other. And that's not a pastor job. Well, hey, the pastor always does that. No, that's your job. You're called to be Jesus, too. I'm not more Jesus than you. That's not how that works. He's, he's, got, he's way more Jesus. No, it's not how that works. <laughs> it's not how it works. I'm normal. Just like you. Just like you. I speak to God as much as I can. God has gifted me in certain areas, but God has gifted you in certain areas, and my gift is not greater or less than yours. There's no hierarchy. There's Jesus, and there is his bride. And everything he does, he's inspired to save her, to win her, to love her. I think about that struggle. Do you realize how, I mean, like, I don't know, some of you might have, some of you might have had some relationships where you're like, yeah, I know, I know what it's like to be with somebody that don't like you. If you have been a teenager long enough, you probably had some multiple relationships there, and you probably realize that. Like, you know how rare it is to like somebody and they actually like you? Like, for real like you. Like, that's hard. It's super rare. It's super rare. And, and for all that to take place and all that to happen, and Jesus is like one of those, like he's constantly trying to win you. And by the way, if you were giving Jesus advice, every time you saw somebody dump on him, you'd be like, forget that fool, Jesus. Right? And he's like, no, nah, man, you just don't seem the way I do. Isn't that crazy, by the way? If Jesus, Jesus was a person, guys, if you saw Jesus being so loving and graceful to somebody who hates him, would spit in his face, and he'd be like, man, I love them. Like, Jesus, they just ripped your beard out and, pull, and spit on you, bro. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, it hurt, but I love them. They're my family. Uh, no. Don't, let's be honest. No. That's who we'd be. And every Easter, this is what inspires me. Like, really? Like, no matter how bad I get, like, you still love me. Like, no matter what. Like, and over time, what I have found is that Jesus always wins you. Because at some point, you come to your senses. Right? Like, dude, I'm awful, and he still likes me. For real, like, I better, I better, oh, I better, like, be nice here. Because, like, I, at some point, I'm going to ruin that. You know, right? And, like, Jesus is like, nah, forever, I got you. I got you. Right? That's what Easter is. It's not behavior modification where if you act better or attend more or do anything like that, it's, it's not, it's not uh, um, works in that the more you do things, the more outreach we do, the more this and that, you're more saved. Man, the church was not meant to be a name or a building. It was meant to be us being able to talk, to shake your hand, to hug your neck when you come in, and it be genuine. And not just like, well, that's just what they do. No, it's genuine. We love each other. We care for each other. We try to be there for each other. Yeah, it's hard, but we work at it. It's messy. Sometimes we've been around each other too much, and we hand each other. Right? But you know how family is? But I love them. They're my family. Like, growing up with my mom, you still people walking like, man, I, could, I can't live with my mom for nothing. I mean, if we live together... 
we probably hurt each other. But you pull us away, and we live in two different homes, we're like best friends. And, and it's weird how the relationship works sometimes. Like, we can be so close that we irritate each other, but that doesn't mean we don't love each other. Don't mistake that for things that happen in the church, by the way. Right? I'm trying to teach some school stuff here, but, but don't mistake those things, man. Easter is about him living, about us living with each other. And we should be inspired by each other as Jesus was inspired by his bride. Amen? I'm going to bring the worship back in here. It was a wake-up call for me. I, I think about the time when I met Joy, and I think about that time with Elijah, and I think about the loneliness of, uh, I think about the loneliness of Jesus in the moment of Gethsemane and how it all paired together. And Initially, this wasn't a sermon. These were just things that I was been playing around in my journal for quite some time now, things that have bothered me, things that disturbed me a little bit, and so I just kind of mulling it over in my brain, and I began to talk with my mentor about this whole thing and how this thing kind of like drew in together, and I was like, this is what I'm going to teach for Easter. And uh, my mentor was like, Man, work it out in your own heart so you don't cry all the way through it like you just did over the phone, you know? And I'm like, well, I think it was the Lord, because this is the Lord talking to me about this. You know, I had such a frustration with this, but I find myself the way God speaks to me in a way that I could understand, which, you know, he used my wife as an illustration for me. And so that's the only way I know how to talk with you about it. God had to use her to, to inspire me to become the man I am today. And, and, and uh, in 20 some odd years of being with my wife, the one of the things that uh, I've always liked about her that it inspired me to become who I am today was the fact that she always had this like moral compass. A lot of you've heard this before. She always had this like moral compass and that was something I knew I didn't have and I wanted. And it wasn't, she wasn't perfect and she wasn't like, we're going to church every time and I'm just so good. She wasn't like any of that. You know, I could corrupt her just as much as anybody can corrupt a relationship. But the thing was that somewhere deep down in her, she had this love for Jesus. And it was always pulling. Jesus was always just like, I got her tethered. And she might get a little far, but by gosh, she ain't leaving the rope. And man, and, and I, I mean, it's like she just grabbed my hand. I'm like, I ain't letting go. And when she moved to Washington, mm -mm, I'm going to Washington. I ain't letting go. I ain't, I, I've got to seize this moment. I've got to seize this thing right now. I've got to get so fixed. I've got to look at her. You know, that we say we become what we behold. I beheld the beauty of my wife, and I chased it as far till I had it. And I'm going to tell you right now, there ain't nothing different in the gospel. God has his eye on you. Hear me right now. God has his eye on you, and there ain't nothing that's going to stop him from pursuing you. Oh, you're going to have troubles. You're going to have your issues with people, and you're going to try to make up all kinds of excuses to why you can't fellowship and why you can't do this and why you can't do that. But make no mistake, regardless of where you end up and where you go, you can't outrun, or will you ever outrun Jesus Christ? He will tether you. Somehow, someone, he used my wife to get me. I don't know what your hook looks like. But he's a good fisherman, guys. He's a good one. Let's stand this morning.